The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Seek and You Will Find in Advanced GI Cancers, Identifying and Targeting Uncommon but Actionable Genomic Alterations in Colorectal, Pancreatic, and Other Cancers. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PCK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you. Good evening, all. Uh, it fills my heart with joy unspeakable to see you all in person here. Again, it's a trip to ASCO GI after four years, right? Four years? Two years or four years? It seems like 100 years ago, you know, with the pandemic on. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for being here. Uh, seek and you will find in advanced GI cancers, identifying and targeting uncommon but actionable genomic alterations in colorectal, pancreatic, and other cancers. Again, we'd like this to be a panel discussion and an interactive discussion. Although the stage is uh, set like a presidential debate, we are not going to debate here. You know, we are all going to, you know, we are all in one team against cancer. So uh, let me uh, go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Vivek Subaya from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. I'm a medical oncologist. I work as an early phase drug development medical oncologist and uh, the Center Medical Director for the Clinical Center for Targeted Therapy at MD Anderson Cancer Center. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce uh, Dr. Beg, Dr. Parik, and Dr. Rashid here. So let me go ahead and introduce Dr. Shalan Beg so that he can introduce himself, Dr. Beg. Great, um, thank you very much. Um, I'm a medical oncologist. I focus on early phase drug development and GI cancers, um, and I'm the Vice President for Oncology at Science 37. I hold an adjunct uh, faculty appointment at UT Southwestern where I see patients as well. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for joining us. And over to Dr. Aparna Parikh. Um, hi, I'm Aparna Parikh. I'm a GI oncologist at the Mass General Cancer Center. Um, also um, specialized in colorectal cancer and do both um, early stage and late um, stage development in GI cancers. Dr. Rashid. Dr. Rashid, I had the pleasure of bumping in, into him in the flight when it landed. Although we work at MD Anderson, we haven't met each other before. That's how M big MD Anderson is. So it's um, my Otherwise, pleasure. we work very closely. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I am a GI pathologist who also sign out molecular diagnostic. Uh, uh, so it's part GI uh, histology and part uh, molecular diagnostics. So it's a pleasure and honor to you know, welcome uh, Dr. Beck, Dr. Parikh, and Dr. Rashid uh, for this evening. I think we're going to have a nice, a well-rounded panel discussion. Um, and we have medical oncology expertise, GA oncology expertise, uh, you know, clinical trial expertise, and then deep uh, pathology expertise here. Again, what are the objectives of this program? Right? To understand the current guidelines and evidence related to molecular testing and targeted therapeutics, enabling timely diagnostic and treatment of gene fusion-driven GI cancers, to be able to implement collaborative, multidisciplinary genomic testing protocols designed to capture less common but actionable molecular alterations in metastatic or locally advanced gastrointestinal cancers, to be able to construct safe, individualized treatment plans for patients with advanced GI cancers who present with uncommon genomic alterations. So. Brief agenda for today, we had a welcome introduction, and I'll be talking about the recognition of gaps and opportunities for improvement, why we are here, 
Um, there are a lot of people virtually signed up for this watching from their homes. I think one thing, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is the way we operate, right? I think uh, more than being in person, it's great to see uh, you all in person. And I'm, I'm, it, it's great to see uh, you all face to face. But of course, you know, learning educational activities can be done remotely and many people have joined remotely. So we will have an audience Q&A from people joining in remotely as well. And clinical consults, you know, we'll learn about key molecular testing strategies and targeted treatment of GI tumors driven by less common genetic alterations, like picking needles in haystacks. The first part of the session is going to be test before you treat. Real-world systems for identifying fusion-driven cancers for tailored therapy. And why do these needles in haystacks picking less common genetic alterations matter? And also, we're going to explore strategies for delivering personalized treatment plans. So why are we discussing this topic? Right? So we, let's talk about we need, that we need to recognize gaps and opportunities for improvement. Again, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they said we cannot sequence a human genome. It took two decades ago, it took billions of dollars to sequence a human genome. Right now, we can get a genetic testing done in major academic centers and in commercial available companies all across the US and the world uh, you know, for $5,000. There are many, many companies in Asia, uh, in India and China, that say that they can get the cost down to less than $100. So again, genomics, you know, again, my personal belief is that genomics at one point should be part of diagnosis so that we can offer customized therapies to our patients. So advances in biomarker testing and targeted treatment have improved the outcomes of many patients with cancer, and biomarker testing has become standard of care for many tumor types. However, recent analysis of real-world data have revealed suboptimal rates of biomarker testing and limited access to testing for some patients. Even when biomarker testing is performed, use of inappropriate testing methods has been reported. So this hinders the identification of key molecular alterations, including that are less common, but still highly relevant, like gene fusions of NTRAC and RET. A hotspot mutation is done, so an NTRAC or RET is not tested in the hotspot mutation panel. But the clinical medical records would probably indicate that mutation panel is negative. It's not. So the appropriate biomarker testing have to be performed. This leads to suboptimal treatment selection, suboptimal treatment timing and delivery. This has been found to be problematic in many settings, including community settings and many academic settings as well. So why do we need to test patients, our patients with cancer, miss out on opportunities to benefit from specific biomarker match therapies? Example, RET fusion inhibi RET inhibitors and TREK inhibitors. And these patients tend to have a poorer outcome when we don't treat them with the appropriate therapy. A lot of improvement is needed. The best practices for biomarker testing has been established. Several targeted therapies for gene fusions have been approved by regulatory authorities in the US and globally, and others are in development. We have a long way to go. There are so much opportunities here for improvement. So let's talk about GI cancers. When we think about GI cancers, the first 
tissue agnostic approval was a major event, 2017. 2017, uh, immunotherapy was approved for MSI high positive cancers. It was a marriage of immunotherapy and genomics. That opened up the world of tissue agnostic precision medicine. Following that, Entrec inhibitor, Laratrectinib, was FDA approved for Entrec fusion positive cancers across multiple tumor types, including GI tumor types. Following that, a year later, another Entrec inhibitor, Entrectinib, was also approved for Entrec fusion positive cancers. Following that, TMB high, tumor mutation burden greater than 10, also received an FDA approval for immunotherapy. Again, this case was pembrolizumab. A second PD-1 inhibitor, adostelimab, was approved for DD, MMR, high positive cancers. The two recent tissue agnostic approvals was BRAF B600E and red fusions. Again, let's talk about more in detail about red fusions and, and later about Entrac fusions, because the latest kid on the block in fusions is red fusion that is approved in a tissue agnostic manner. What are the emerging biomarkers in GI cancers? We, of course, we have NRG1 fusions, we have HER2 new amplifications, and FGFR2 fusions in cholangiocancer and many other cancers. So let's talk about the timeline of discovery of fusions. This is important. Small marker chromosome was observed in patients with CML as early as 1960. CML was the poster child for fusion and poster child for precision oncology. And following that, uh, fusions were discovered in salivary gland adenocarcinoma. The 11-22 translocation, the EWS FLEV1 fusion, was discovered in Ewing sarcoma, which is a, a sarcoma that strikes adolescents and young adults in the prime of their lives. Red fusions were identified as one of the first oncogenic kinases to be cloned and identified using lymphoma DNA. BRAF fusions were identified in the 1990s. Between 1990 and 1980 and 1990, Entrac fusions and ROS fusions were discovered. 2000s, we saw PDGFR fusions. We started discovering more and more fusions. After discovery of ALK fusion and ALK targeted therapy and Red fusion, you know, mark the date, red fusion was identified in non-small cell lung cancer in 2012. Five years, not one but two selective red inhibitors entered first in human clinical trials in 2017. I remember dosing the first patient with a red inhibitor. Approximately three years later, the first selective red inhibitor, selpercatinib, May, in May 2020, in the peak of the pandemic, was FDA approved. The timeline of approval in a rare biomarker-driven disease within three years was unprecedented. So again, we are seeing that if we identify these patients, patients can benefit from these targeted therapies. Let's talk about that in the next set of slides. So what is a gene fusion? You all know about gene fusions. I don't want to talk more, but gene fusion is a hybrid of two genes that results in downstream activation of in the MAP kinase pathway, the PI3K pathways, leading to carcinogenesis and oncogenesis. So what do we have? Like we, you know, again, after ALK fusion seen in lung cancer, ALK was seen in multiple, multiple other cancers as well. If we take the TCGA data, other than ALK, we see BRAF fusions, FGFR2 fusions, red fusion, not only in lung cancer or thyroid cancer, but across multiple, multiple cancer types. So we see a long tail of you know, kinase fusions across cancer. So 
Ultimately, you know, these biomarker-driven cancers may form a separate subgroup of tumors treated in a similar manner, like an alcoma or a toma. Again, that's my personal belief. It's like a, a decade later, we will be thinking about a retoma. We'll be thinking about an alcoma. And you know, when we move away from chemotherapies, we are not there yet, but we'll get there at some point. Tests before you treat. That's why we need to test before we treat. Real-world systems for identifying fusion-driven cancers for tailored therapy. Um, so we'll start with the case here. Um, and again, I'm a colorectal cancer um, specialist. So this is a case that um, is very typical in my clinic. Um, so this is a 59-year-old woman um, with advanced CRC, and her presentation was as such. So she presented with a couple of months of abdominal discomfort, bloating, and weight loss, all typical symptoms we see in um, GI cancers, was found to be anemic with a hemoglobin of 8, um, an elevated CEA, um, which we don't see in all uh, colorectal cancers, but many. Um, and her workup found... Uh, um, mass and the ascending colon, and um, in colon cancer, sidedness is important to describe. So, knowing if it's in the ascending colon or descending colon matters, um, has both prognostic and predictive um, uh, uh, significance. And the biopsy was shown to have uh, poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, and unfortunately, a CT scan had widespread um, lesions across the liver. Um, so this is a de novo met CRC, no prior history, no um, prior treatment history, and has showed up in your clinic with a de novo diagnosis. Um, so how do you approach molecular profiling to capture the diagnosis and capture the relevant biomarkers? Um, and look forward to hearing Dr. Rashid talking about the different techniques to capture um, relevant genomic alterations. Okay, so um, I think it, this has been introduced. Um, what we are going to talk about are these uh, RET and uh, TRK fusions. And what's happening is that there is a chromosomal translocation where part of a chromosome joins another gene. And uh, what we have to understand is that, that this is very um, uh, simple way of thinking about uh, this event. Of course, there is a translocation here. There may be another translocation on the other chromosome also. And sometimes there is loss of uh, uh, gene also. So it could be, um, it, uh, it is complicated. Every um, patient will have a different event. Uh, so we are going to go over some of these uh, scenarios. And uh, so, what happens is that um, the two genes that we're going to talk about today, the three prime end of the gene has kinase from one gene, which uh, joins a five prime end from another gene, and it forms a fusion gene which is not um, physiological. And this gene uh, is expressed. Um, the gene which is joined at the five prime, this is highly expressed in the tissue where this happens with the result that there is uh, RNA, which is hybrid. Uh, it has uh, five prime from, from, um, from one gene and um, kinase from the three prime uh, gene. And this is expressed also. It's a hybrid protein, which is not normally present in the cells. There are various different methods to detect that. Some are based on DNA, some are based on RNA. 
the RNA-based uh, methods are uh, best because uh, we're going to go over that, um, because they are more sensitive, um, and you can uh, find the fusion partner easily with this. DNA-based assays are used often also, and the advantage of that is that uh, RNA is very difficult to um, extract from formalin fixed tissue that we use routinely, and DNA is much better than that, but again, uh, the amount of sequencing that you have to do is different for uh, DNA-based methodology uh, in contrast to RNA-based methodology. So these are um, four or five different methods that are used often. NGS-based uh, assays, again, they are uh, fairly expensive as compared to other um, methods. The advantage is that you get a comprehensive profile. You get the mutations, you get the other genetic events, and you get the fusion. So you can decide which is the best therapy for the patient. Um, so of course, the cost is um, uh, consideration because these are expensive as compared to other methods. So NGS will give you uh, genetic uh, uh, mutations, including insertions and deletion, um, chromosomal changes, also uh, rearrangement, and copy number changes, and also fusion. So this is a cartoon of red gene. Uh, the, this particular gene is on chromosome 10, and uh, it has multiple um, exons, you can see, and uh, this is a, just a depiction, but some of the exons are separated by a large intron. So these lines denote that uh, th uh, this protein has an extracellular um, uh, domain which binds the ligand. It has a cysteine-rich area, which uh, has a lot of cysteine uh, residues, and then it has this ye um, yellow-colored uh, domain, which is the um, kinase domain. Um, here at the bottom, it, uh, this gene is altered in patients who have MEN2A uh, and 2B uh, syndrome and uh, familial uh, um, uh, medullary thyroid cancer. And, in, in, and these mutations are predominantly in the kinase domain and in the cysteine-rich uh, area. So um, on the right-hand side, it shows some of the cancers which are associated with the fusion. Thyroid cancer, as has been pointed out, is, uh, it is present in 10 to 20%. Um, Lung is one to two percent. The other uh, cancers, including uh, Spitz nevi and um, colon cancer and pancreatic cancer, it would be less than one percent. So it's not a very common event in other tumors apart from the one that uh, um, uh, includes thyroid and uh, lung. Uh, the translocations, uh, the the fusions occur in. Um, exon 11, 10, and 7. So it has multiple areas which are targeted with that thing. And what's going to happen is that it will have either the, uh, uh, it will have the kinase domain, 
it may or may not have the transmembrane domain. So it can be, uh, it, it may be intracellular protein. It's not displayed on the, uh, on the um, membrane. So this, again, uh, is data from lung uh, that these are the four most uh, common partners with, with RET. So you can see that these, uh, sort of, it doesn't matter what these genes are because the reason it is picking these genes are because these are expressed in lung, for instance. And uh, uh, so this is the most common, and it can have five, uh, seven different variants, seven different uh, um, areas which are targeted. So we have to um, design assays which are going to uh, capture all the fusions that we can, uh, that we see or we can think of for each of these um, fusion proteins. The other method which is uh, used is a fish assay. There are two types of probes. One are called, um, uh, these are fusion um, probes. There are two different colored probes which are uh, close together. So if there is a um, fusion and uh, these two uh, parts separate, so they are not together. If they are together, they give an, um, like they will give a, a blue color. But if they are separate, then we see red and green, which are separated from each other. So we, we know that there's a fusion event. The other one is a break apart uh, probe. Again, when there is a fusion event, uh, the one probe is uh, the, uh, the light is quenched by the other and that separates and the light changes. So these are the two common uh, type of probes that we use for fish assay. So again, we are going to uh, say that a few times that the problem with DNA-based assay for fusion is that the, um, these exons are separated by large introns. And these events are mostly in the introns, so we have to sequence a lot of uh, gene to, uh, to find the area of fusion, or we have to come up with a different st strategy to find where the fusion is and, uh, and um, what is the fusion partner. So this is uh, from a study. Uh, this is, um, I think, Ross gene, which was uh, studied by several different methods. These were 20 tumors, and they found that there were some tumors they were not able to find the um, area of fusion. So again, uh, this is a genomic uh, viewer. Uh, you're going to see more of that. Um, uh, these are the exons. This is 31. This, um, uh, this is exon 32. There's a large intron here. And this, uh, these mountains here, this shows how much sequence at that particular nucleotide we have. You can see that there's a good uh, amount of uh, sequence here, and there's some sequence here and here. But this area, there's uh, no sequence whatsoever. And the reason is that this has two line elements. 
Now, line and ELU elements, these are repetitive uh, sequences which make about 40% of our genome, and they are very difficult to sequence. Uh, so because of that, uh, the um, most likely explanation that they were not able to find the um, area of fusion was because they were inhaled somewhere and they couldn't sequence using uh, uh, the uh, DNA sequencing that they were using for this particular study. The same point here, that you have uh, exons separated with a large um, intron in this NTRK3 gene. So you have to come up with a different strategy to find a fusion in this. Um, this shows um, a comparison between DNA and RNA. So if you think that there is a fusion here, this is one exon, this is another exon, and the fusion would be somewhere here. So we'll have to sequence the entire area to find the area of fusion. With RNA-based technique, we will uh, uh, use RT-PCR, and with the result that the fusion protein, uh, uh, the, the um, cDNA, for the fusion would be fairly small. It will be easier to sequence. And I'm going to show you some examples of that. So uh, again, this is a comparison between uh, DNA and RNA. I don't have any stocks in RNA uh, technology, <laughs> but uh, uh, so large intron is a problem. Repetitive uh, elements in introns are a problem. Low tumor sample number, Again, we are trying to find, we use a DNA from tumor that have 20% cellularity, and uh, one of the chromosome will be altered. So we are uh, trying to find something like 5% uh, of the DNA would have that, uh, would have the event that we are looking for. But RNA, these uh, genes, the fusion genes are overexpressed. They have, if the other genes are uh, like in uh, uh, sort of a low, low thousand, they would be in 10,000 and 100,000. So you have much more of, uh, of this fusion uh, uh, cDNA which is produced. So they should be easy, uh, like they are easier to find because of that also. And again, uh, it's a problem because the event, we think it's very simple that there are two chromosomes which break and they join, but the event can be very complex and uh, with the result that it may show different results with, few, uh, with the fish and with immunostochemistry and uh, DNA or RNA-based uh, techniques. So you have to use uh, sometimes multiple techniques to come up uh, with the right answer. So again, the sensitivity and specificity varies by different technologies, different labs. Um, the NGS is expensive, but it provides a comprehensive tumor profile. In our um, uh, institution, we had figured out that if uh, they asked for two or three genes, that would be the same as doing, uh, as doing an NGS. So if they ask us to do two or three genes, we say that we will do NGS instead of giving you individual genes. So you will get a comprehensive view. Um, 
RNA-based methods are more sensitive. I showed you. It shows you the fusion partner easily, but uh, there is a higher rate of uh, failure to extract RNA. All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, glad we have amazing pathologists to do all the behind-the-scenes tough, tough, tough work. Thank you so much for you know sharing with us. So again, this what happens uh, in the back end when we see these red and entrac fusions uh, in the clinic, and we get you know this excitement. So in the next slides, we're going to uh, showcase why we need to painstakingly pick these needles in haystacks and test all this. So less common genomic alterations matter. Strategies for delivering personalized treatment plan. Uh, th that's going to be the next uh, agenda. So going back to Margaret's case, please, go yes, ahead. Yes, so Margaret comes into the clinic, and again, in awe of all the work that um, our molecular path and path does in the background. So you um, do broad-based testing for this patient. Again, remember, she was de novo metastatic um, disease, and she um, it was started on systemic therapy, but taking a step back to the questions from the earlier slide, um, I hope Dr. Rashid's um, talk really drove home the point that comprehensive genomic um, testing is standard of care for these patients, and we do that at the outset. Um, and when you're looking at the different tests, it is important to understand if it's a DNA-based or an RNA-based test. And as we are learning more and more about these fusions and um, have therapies, um, extremely effective therapies for these fusions. Um, having an RNA-based test is critical and is something that um, you should be looking for and asking for. Um, we have other technologies such as ctDNA, which are getting better for um, fusions, but you know not quite as sensitive yet as the tissue-based testing. So when a um, patient with colorectal cancer walks into the clinic, you're doing broad-scale testing, and that's just not for these fusions. We have other important biomarkers that will immediately dictate um, treatment. So, you know, colorectal cancer is becoming sort of subsets of subsets. So we have MSI high, which there's a first-line indication for, and then, you know, beyond first-line, HER2, BRAF, B600E, other BRAF alterations, um, KRAS, um, which is you know, no longer just KRAS, um, you know, G12C has made it into colorectal cancer um, as well. And so really important to do comprehensive testing. Um, and then of course the, the fusions as well. Um, so she gets um, started on systemic therapy with doublet and bevacizumab, which is um, pretty standard with colorectal cancer. We either give doublet or triplet um, uh, therapy with the biologic and um, the biologic is based on sightedness and RAS status. Um, she ultimately goes on maintenance therapy and is followed with um, surveillance on maintenance. And at that time, um, she starts to have some um, progression in her livers. Um, and meanwhile, importantly, NGS used during her baseline assessment um, captured the RET fusion. Um, so now we have to think about, you have a patient that's progressed on chemotherapy. We could go back to that chemotherapy that she was on. Um, but what's the next best step for her? and what's the best next treatment. Um, and we have now, and we'll go over some of the data of some of the new um, RET inhibitors, but um, maybe, you know, Shalon passing it to you to sort of think about um, how would you think about this patient's next line of therapy as well? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's a great option for this patient who has standard systemic chemotherapy treatment options to go back towards. 
Um, I'm not seeing any mention of uh, KRAS mutations. There are options around EGFR inhibitors that can be used. There are iron-tecan-based chemo treatments that can be used. But really, I think um, this patient's struck oil or gold, however you want to look at it, um, with a RET gene fusion. And I think with a lot of the development that's happening in the space with RET-specific uh, treatments and with a pipeline of uh, approved drugs and drugs in the, in the works, um, it's definitely worth a discussion and um, um, to, to see if they want to move to more targeted therapy based on their genomic profile. You know, and, and previously, um, prior to these more selective inhibitors, we had a um, toolkit of, um, you know, standard multi-kinase inhibitors, which were quite dirty inhibitors, but um, now we have um, options, um, and, you know, one particularly that we'll talk about that has an all-solid tumor indication um, for RET. So recent developments and new directions for RET inhibitor therapy in GI cancers. So, um, you know, as we've talked about today, fusions are truly a needle in a haystack in GI cancers. So predominantly, these fusions are seen in non-small cell lung cancer and thyroid cancer. Um, but when you, um, you know, find them in other GI cancers, and you can see across the board, you know, less than 1%, less than 1%. But for that one patient that's less than 1%, that's 100% for that patient, and it is truly kind of hitting a gold mine there. Um, there are different um, fusion partners across, um, uh, across cancer types, and um, we'll show you some data of some of the fusion partners. But again, um, increasingly rare, and um, we all in our careers will you know, have a couple of these that come up in clinic, but um, incredibly important to look for given the um, exquisite sensitivity of fusions to um, these selective agents. Um, so uh, the, on the top here, you can sort of see the first generation of the um, more kind of dirty multi-kinase um, tyrosine kinase uh, um, inhibitors that included, you know, um, RET, but were not by any means um, selective, and that included drugs such as lumbatinib and um, cabozantinib and electinib. And then we started having the selective TKIs being developed um, with um, selpercatinib and pralacetinib. And, um, you know, selpercatinib is the drug that you would use, um, you know, here. That's where your label is for all um, tumor agnostic um, or a tumor agnostic um, uh, label. So um, indication independent. And um, we've just highlighted here uh, the indication there. So very good option for um, this patient. Um, and um, some of the, and we'll, uh, I think Vivek may talk about this about a little bit later, but some of the side effects and things that you're watching for with um, sulpercatinib, you get a little bit of hypertension, some LFT, some dry mouths. But here was the, um, the study that really um, kind of changed the landscape for this. Um, so this was a you know, standard um, phase one with the phase two dose um, expansion with, um, again, all oral dosing, um, BID dosing, 160 milligrams BID. Um, they had the um, common phenotype uh, cohorts with um, non-small cell lung cancer and thyroid cancer, and then um, 45 um, patients in other cancer types, and then they had a tumor agnostic um, efficacy population as well, and the primary um, endpoint was ORR. Um, and here you can again see across, um, across tumor types um, responses here. And again, just highlighting uh, some of the GI cancers um, in you know, pancreatic cancer in blue, um, colon cancer in red. Um, again, highlighting um, great responses across tumor types. 
Um, when we looked at it, um, so the overall um, response rate again was 44%. And when we looked at it again, small numbers, um, but across um, other uh, tumor types and GI indications um, here um, on the right. Um, so again, patients, sample sizes um, smaller, 11 for pancreatic and um, 10, but you know, remarkable response rates. So 55% um, response rate in pancreatic cancer, 20% um, in colorectal cancer. And to give you a benchmark of refractory colorectal cancer treatments, response rates at single digits. Um, and um, you know, some of these patients, again, that I showed you on the previous slide, um, you know, beat that 20%. Um, when you look at the um, AEs, um, you know, well-tolerated um, uh, drug, and as you can see here, you know, ALT, AST, some LFTs, the dry mouth and the hypertension were the um, notable AEs, but all very um, manageable, so no um, kind of DLTs emerged. Um, that were really limiting for patients. Um, so well-tolerated, um, one well-tolerated drug, and in this um, trial, only you know one patient ended up um, discontinuing drug to a treatment-related AE. And I actually don't know which AE that was that that patient discontinued. I'm not sure if you remember Vivek, but um, again, a very well-tolerated drug. Yeah, the drug is uh, extremely well-tolerated. Yeah, again, uh, RET is a tissue agnostic target. And this was also validated by a second selective RET inhibitor, pralcitinib, and this was, uh, you know, showed uh, also activity across m many, many GI cancers as well. And as Aparna, you know, previously shared, you know, pancreatic cancer is one of the toughest cancer, uh, you know, to treat. And, you know, 55% response rates in pancreatic cancer, that's been phenomenal. Again, sh and Dr. Beg and I, you know, personally treated, uh, you know, patients with RET fusion positive uh, pancreatic cancer. Again, picking these needles in haystacks in young patients with pancreatic cancer and, you know, seeing how they benefit from treatment. Again, that's what makes an oncologist, you know, go to clinic and go to, you know, motivated to go to clinic uh, to see these patients respond, see these patients rules well. That's why Dr. Rashid and colleagues in pathology work hard to uh, get and identify these uh, fusions here. And maybe Vivek, just highlighting again the response from your your data, right? That that was the um, second study was independent of non-small cell lung cancer, independent of thyroid, and still had a 57% response rate. So truly remarkable um, across tumor types. Um, so I think going back to this patient. Yeah. So I think one of the points Vivek, I've I've heard you make a lot is that genomic profiling is part of an adequate diagnosis. And we think about genomic profiling as strategies that we use to decide what kind of treatments we're going to go, and that's certainly a fact, but, but really the adequate characterization of the tumor upon diagnosis, genomic sequencing is, needs to be part of that in this day and age with, with the development of medications like what we're, we're talking about right now. Um, and thankfully, you know, you, you gave the example of the patient who we're talking about, you know, we're now asking ourselves questions like how long do we continue treating someone who has a complete clinical response to, 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 these, uh, to these treatments? When they progress, what do we do in adding additional treatments? Do we continue the suppression of the oncogenic driver and add other medications? And, and 
in terms of the side effects, what are the long-term consequences that we need to, to worry about? So, so uh, Aparna and Vivek, like, how do you approach these scenarios for this group of patients who, once we find the needle in the hay haystack, are having deep and clinically meaningful responses and, and we want to ensure that we see long-time uh, sustainability for, for their diseases? Yeah, I mean, so I think unlike, you know, immunotherapy, where I think it's um, a little bit um, unclear what to do after patients, um, you know, have, go into a CR or have disease control sort of a couple of years um, into treatment, and the duration is a little bit more um, controversial, I think, with these targeted therapies, you know, I think you continue till the time of, um, you know, progression. And I think the MSI piece here is really important. Um, it is known that um, these fusions are enriched for um, MSI high status. So, you know, about 30% of um, patients that have a fusion will also be found to um, have MSI high um, status. And so we don't really know yet um, in terms of sequencing. Should we you know, give the immunotherapy first? Um, should we do the, um, you know, targeted therapy first and then move on to the um, immunotherapy? And, you know, data that we may, you know, just have to sort of generate as we um, prospectively um, collect information on these patients because a trial is going to be hard to do, um, looking at that sequencing question for such a rare subtype and then even a rare subgroup that are MSI high. But um, these are clinical decisions that we have to um, kind of face with. And the AEs we talked about, but um, Vivek, I don't know if you have any other comments on um, duration or you know, timing of um, immunotherapy. Yeah, again, the, you know, patients with uh, CRC, the duration, if they do respond, they res do respond for, for a long time. And, you know, in, in the clinical trial, the duration of treatment with colorectal cancer was um, uh, nine months. And interestingly, again, what we saw was you see the, if you see the, uh, uh, the response rates in pancreatic cancer, 55% response rates in pancreatic cancer, whereas in colorectal cancer, which was 20%, Right? When we see this difference, we had to take a step back and think about what are the standard of care options uh, in colorectal cancer. What is the response rate in colorectal cancer with the standard of care options? Regorafenib, we went back and looked into the response rate. It was 1%. And with uh, Tipiracil, uh, Lonserf, the response rate was 1.6%. So compare that with uh, you know, this treatment. And I've, you know, we personally take, you know, taken care of patients who had had stable disease with red fusions on red inhibitors with colorectal cancer, clinically benefiting from treatment. So again, uh, um, responses, resistance-based responses may not be the best way to assess our responses in colorectal cancer. Probably we need to think about PFS and other, um, you know, measures of success in patients with colorectal cancer. What do you think about that, Dr. Big? Absolutely, especially in situations where we have other additional lines of therapy, your overall survival results may also be muffled. So the, the world where we would get clear signals on subsequent and, and sequential randomized clinical trials in, in, in an era such as what we're facing in colorectal cancer with various molecularly targeted options for these patients, the, the endpoints are tricky. And... Um, I think response rates for early signal of activity is, is, is helpful for a lot of these treatments. Uh, Progression-free survival, especially for drugs that have a favorable side effect profile. I should say favorable, but I should say one which can allow patients to continue um, living with high quality of life is very meaningful. And I think we are in a world where we are questioning what the endpoints need to be for, for this group of patients.
Yeah, and I think, you know, the other interesting thing, just looking at the differential, um, you know, effects across tumor types, I think we've learned from these other targeted therapies, not necessarily fusions, that, you know, tumor context does, you know, matter um, some, you know, BRAF was the poster child of that, where you, you know, saw remarkable response rates in melanoma, and then you took it to single agent BRAF therapies and colorectal cancer and had single digit response rates because we learned quickly that you had, you know, reactivation of kind of MAP kinase pathway um, we see that with G12C. It's exciting in colon cancer. It's not as good as it is in lung cancer. So I think we'll learn more as we start to treat more of these patients. But, um, you know, as Dr. Spy was mentioning, the um, you know, response rates are uh, still um, impressive in this patient population. And great, um, great problem to have, right, for us to have to ask these questions for exactly. this group of patients. Absolutely. Um, so this is just to kind of um, highlight a, you know, kind of wordy, um, slide, but for your reference, um, and just to highlight the fact that there are many ongoing and planned studies um, to look at, um, you know, other newer RET um, inhibitors. I think um, Dr. Subaya and his team are understanding a lot about, you know, novel resistance mechanisms and what are the strategies um, to overcome those resistance mechanisms with the um, next generation of RET inhibitors. So um, I think an exciting time for um, the RET, RET patients. Again, this slide uh, shows RET uh, pathway resistance mechanisms. Again, what we are learning more and more is, you know, as with any of our tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, although we are, you know, thrilled by the, you know, the success, uh, again, after, you know, two, three, four years, you know, these tumors do develop resistance. So what are the resistance mechanisms that we see with selective RET inhibitors? Uh, one is the on-target resistance, and the other one is the off-target resistance. So what are the on-target resistance mechanisms? So both the selective rate inhibitors, selpercatinib and paralcitinib, cover this uh, resistant mutation called gatekeeper mutation, the V804M, that are resistant to the multi-kinase inhibitors like vandertinib, cabosantinib, lenvatinib, sorafenib, sunitinib, so on and so forth. So paralcitinib and selpercatinib have that advantage, but unfortunately, as a resistance mechanism, non-gatekeeper resistance mutation pops up. So what are the non-gatekeeper resistance mutations? So one is called, we call it the solvent front mutation, which is the G810, G8S, and uh, G810R mutations, uh, which is a C-lobe solvent front mutation. Another one is called the roof mutation, and another one is called the hinge mutation. So these are the on-target resistance mechanisms that we see to selective RET inhibitors. And the second generation uh, RET inhibitors are being developed like LOXO26, HMO6, and among others, to overcome these on-target uh, selective RET resistance mechanisms. So what is the other resistance mechanism off-target? So off-target is primarily mediated by uh, RAS-RAF uh, you know, pathway activation. One thing we've seen in non-small cell lung cancer is MET amplification as one of the mechanism of resistance. In fact, there have been anecdotal cases reported of selpercatinib being combined with crizotinib to overcome and circumvent the mechanism of resistance. So these are interesting. So more and more patients with uh, you know, colorectal pancreatic cancer are gonna be treated in the community. We will be seeing you know, additional mechanisms of resistance. You know, I've seen a patient with NTREC uh, three fusion as a mechanism of resistance in a patient with KIF-5B red fusion in you know, a positive cancer. Again, the question is, you know, can we treat 
these two fusion patients with laratectinib and, 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 and selpercatinib. Again, uh, time will tell. Uh, we've done the preclinical work, and you know, hopefully if there is a next patient uh, who develops a resistance mechanism, we have the preclinical proof of concept uh, data in. And beyond these two on-target uh, and off-target selective resistance mechanisms, another mechanism, unique mechanism, called histological transformation to either from, from adeno-non-small uh, cell lung cancer to squamous lung cancer or small cell lung cancer has also been reported to selective rate inhibitors. Again, these uh, on-target, off-target, and histological transformation resistant mechanism are becoming a common theme to highly potent kinase inhibitors. So again, uh, recent updates on TREK inhibitor therapy. I'll hand it over to Dr. Begg. All right. So let's change gears and talk about patient with uh, metastatic pancreas cancer. So Richard's a 63-year-old gentleman who presents with weight loss, vomiting, pain, and jaundice, and has elevated LFTs, elevated tumor markers, and is found to have a mass in the pancreas obstructing the bile duct. So um, how would we approach baseline testing for this patient, and, and how would we incorporate uh, genomic sequencing for this group of patients and, trek, and, and, and test for alterations such as RET and, and NTREC? I'll, I'll throw this question to you, Dr. Parikh, in terms of um, approaching um, pancreas cancer patients in terms of diagnosis, tissue acquisition, and, and genomic testing. Yeah, so, you know, pancreatic cancer is a little bit, um, you know, tougher even in terms of sometimes the tissue acquisition, um, especially if you just have the um, primary and not um, a lot of liver metastases if it's a locally advanced tumor, just in terms of the quality of specimen you can get. Um, and, you know, we have worked over the years with our, um, you know, interventional colleagues just to ensure that they're no longer just getting FNAs and, um, you know, getting good, um, getting good blocks for molecular testing. You know, unlike colon cancer, where the pie is certainly divided up in many pieces, um, the pie is still quite uh, intact um, in pancreatic cancer. You know, the um, MSI um, high pancreatic cancer patients are also exceedingly low, you know, 1% to 2% at best. I think even 2% is generous um, for MET-PDAC. Again, we're making some headway with... Um, you know, KRAS, which is 80% of pancreatic cancers. Um, so, you know, yes, we are um, still searching um, and kind of looking for that needle in the haystack um, because we don't yet have the armamentarium that we have in colon cancer um, for pancreatic cancer. And our, you know, chemotherapies are, you know, still, um, you know, limited. We have full furanox and um, you know, maybe um, Naliri kind of comes into play with the data here at GIS Go um, and Gemabraxane. But um, beyond that, you have to um, look because the, you know, median OS for these patients is, you know, 12, you know, 12 to 14 months. Um, so same testing applies, um, you know, looking for um, uh, comprehensive genomic profiling. But again, um, RNA is still important here to try to find um, some of these, so absolutely um, should be testing for RET and TREK here, too. Thank you. Dr. Sheed? So, um, the NTRK genes, uh, they code for TRK. These are three different proteins on three different chromosomes. Normally, they are active in uh, neural tissue, and uh, you can see the function. The, the 
uh, are not sort of uh, oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes by themselves. And again, they can uh, have a fusion with multiple different partners which differ from tumor type to tumor type. And you have in-frame uh, uh, rearrangement where uh, the uh, TR uh, sort of NTRK uh, fuses with a five prime partner. And uh, so again, um, I think we are talking about pancreatic and colon cancer. That's the reason these are highlighted there uh, in these tumors also. But they can be present in a variety of other tumors, normally less than 1%. Some of the tumors, they are uh, high, which are very rare tumor, like uh, memory analog of secretory uh, carcinoma and secretory breast cancer. So this is salivary gland, breast cancer. This is adult uh, patient. In children, uh, infantile fibrosarcoma and uh, congenital nephroma, again, rare. So it can be present in a uh, uh, it's more frequent in these four tumors, but other normal, um, uh, sort of other more common tumors, it's, uh, it's a rare event. And this is um, a slide which shows that uh, uh, European Society of Medical Oncology um, working group uh, recommendations that uh, you should test for red uh, rearrangement um, uh, using broad panel assays and in tumors where it is um, highly um, recurrent, um, uh, like thyroid and um, lung, for instance, you can use FISH or RT-PCR-based assay. And similarly, in NTRK fusion, uh, again, sort of you want to uh, do it in advanced tumor with, with, uh, without actionable driver or uh, tumors that are uh, more likely to harbor NTRK gene um, fusions. And uh, they can be tested uh, before or during the standard treatment or uh, a patient with an advanced solid uh, tumor and different methods that can be used. And again, we have gone over that, these methods in detail. Uh, so both of these uh, have to be tested, uh, mostly in the tumors that you guys deal with. It's going to be less than 1%, so it probably is going to be better to have a uh, broad-based, NGS-based method. Great. So, um, so let's move on with, with Richard. He has um, genomic testing performed, and we captured NTREC fusion. I think we ordered the, we got enough tissue, we ordered the right test, we found the RET fusion, uh, the, the NTREC fusion, and now we have options for systemic therapy for, for this patient. Um, and I guess the first question here is um, whether we would start with chemotherapy or reserve TREC inhibitor for later. So I'm going to pull my colleagues and, and ask them how they would approach uh, for, for this disease with this alteration. Yeah, I think um, still um, first line is still chemotherapy is still your um, kind of standard of care um, choice. I think we're seeing across um, targeted therapies more and more movement to move some of these targets into the um, first line setting. Um, but, you know, even in um, you know, BRAF, uh, V600E, colorectal cancer, the first line strategy is still in combination with chemo. 
um, in um, in HER2. We actually, the HER2 just got an FDA label today. And, um, you know, with um, Herceptin and Tucatinib and uh, their first line trial is um, with chemotherapy. Um, so in a pancreatic cancer patient where you know that could progress quite l rapidly and you might um, lose your window of opportunity to treat if you don't get a response, um, it might be tempting to give a TREC inhibitor in the first line, but I would still, you know, stick with um, uh, standard chemotherapy first and then um, kind of reserve, um, you know, larotrectinib or entrectinib for a second line. I don't know if you agree or disagree. So, you know, since this looks like a presidential debate, probably we should debate on just one topic. And I agree to disagree here. So again, you know, in this patient with advanced pancreatic cancer, again, uh, I, you know, again, if this, you know, I, I would probably prioritize an NTREC inhibitor if we find the NTREC fusion at diagnosis. Because extrapolating from all the NTREC and red positive cancers, you know, we can create a decisive assault with these targeted and highly potent kinase inhibitors right from the get-go. You know, something happens to, you know, cancer in the second-line setting. The response rate is uptended and diminished. So again, you know, I, I, again, if uh, there are two schools of thought, uh, if a, a GI oncologist would, would you know, can, can discuss about chemotherapy, and a targeted therapy oncologist can definitely discuss about starting targeted therapy at the front-line setting. Uh, again, let's ask Dr. Beck what, what he would do. I will present the data to our audience and let them decide for themselves. So, um, so let's take a deeper dive. And, and again, uh, to, to both points, we know that for pancreatic cancer, according to some cohorts, up to 50% of patients may not be well enough to tolerate second-line therapy. So, so that's one strategy, that the one, one aspect of the complication around this disease that is not very that is very unique to pancreatic cancer is not we don't see that in colorectal cancer and other diseases so let's take a deep dive into what um what these medications have and then we'll see what our audience thinks so we have two fda approved treatments for um trek fusions we have larotrectinib and entrectinib their fda approvals are very similar uh, larotrectinib is approved for adults in peds uh, patients with solid tumors that have NTREC fusions without a known acquired mutation and have no satisfactory alternative treatments or have progressed following treatment. And very similar language around entrectinib as well, which is also saying um, who are metastatic, not an option for surgery, and um, have progressed on one line or do not have satisfactory alternative therapy. And here you're seeing a GI oncologist considering chemo as adequate treatment for pancreas cancer and a targeted oncologist saying no. Uh, that is not the scenario. And I think that we are allowed to have that kind of uh, uh, discussion with the patient when we talk to them about the different treatment options that we have. And we also have treatment options that are being developed right now for, um, for refractory disease with uh, ripotrectinib and selatrectinib. So a little bit of a deep dive into larotrectinib. This is the first selective pan-trec inhibitor in development. Um, it's a highly potent molecule with uh, prolonged responses seen in patients who have TREC fusions. The recommended dose based on phase two studies is 100 milligrams twice a day. I always get a little cautious when folks say that there's promising tolerability because it's our patients who are taking these medications and it's for them to decide. But let's take a deep dive into what the side effect profiles are around these medications in a moment. Dr. Rashid talked about the, 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 the distribution of TREC fusions across multiple tumor types, and he saw that there's a smattering of TREC fusions across all, all specific tumor types. 
When we look at the trials that enrolled patients uh, for, um, for treatment with laratretinib, most of the patients had soft tissue sarcomas or fibrosarcomas. There's a smattering of thyroid, salivary gland, lung, colon, and then you have uh, really those small slices of the pie, which includes our, a lot of our GI cancer, melanoma, just some unknown primary and prostate cancer. But what we're seeing is that the overall response rate in this group of patients approaches 69%. We're seeing 21% complete response rate, five, uh, sorry, 43% partial response rate, and only 8% progressive disease with this, uh, with this regimen for this group of patients. At what cost, well, what does that translate into survival? These are not the regular randomized controlled trial arms that we're used to seeing for cases and controls. Speaks to the field that we are in right now in terms of uh, the development of molecularly targeted therapy. But if we look at the graph on the right-hand side, it shows fairly compelling overall survival um, data with a um, four-year survival of 64%. If you look at 60 months, that's five-year survival. It's more than 50% for this group of patients being treated with um, uh, TREK-directed therapy. So what is the cost of treatment? Uh, cost to our patients are the adverse events that our treatments can provide them. I want you to focus on the uh, right-hand side of, um, of, this, um, of this graph, which highlights the AEs related to larotrectinib. The most common side effects are ASD, ALT elevation, um, cough and uh, fatigue and dizziness. Most of these side effects are, are mild, quote unquote. These are grade one or grade two events and these can be managed conservatively uh, in some situations with dose adjustments. The grade three side effects that we see with this, uh, with this medications include some AST, ALT elevations, but also increased weight, neutrophil, um, uh, neutropenia, and, uh, and, and these are factors that we need to think about. And before this meeting, we, uh, our presentation, we were talking about the weight gain um, effect for, for TREK uh, inhibitors. And it looks like this is a peculiar on-target side effect that we see for this group of patients. And uh, would, would the panel like to comment on um, quality of life impact on, for, for the side effect? And again, uh, this is an on-target uh, toxicity that we see. Again, in cancer patients, if they gain, gain weight, I'm happy many times. And uh, you know, if it's an adolescent, young adult, you know, if they can do exercise, we can also talk. You know, if they, you know, if they are doing so well, and if they want to uh, think about weight uh, control measures, then we talk about sibutramin, Arlistat, and discuss with an endocrinologist as well. But you know, in patients with cancer, especially in the relapsed refractory setting, if they start gaining weight, I'm a, a, a majority a part of me is happy. Let's continue with some um, clinical follow-up for, for larotrectinib. Again, 78% um, lower uh, risk of death with larotrectinib, median um, survival in their cohorts approaching 40 months uh, for patients on, on this, this treatment. On the right-hand side, you'll see um, the comparison of the larotrectinib cohort with um, a real-world data cohort uh, receiving standard of care therapy in the red curves. And we can see how there's clear separation of the curves with markedly improved survival on patients receiving targeted therapy with larotrectinib versus standard of care, which in this group of patients would largely have been some version of, of chemotherapy. Um, there was weighting analysis done because a lot of these trials had diseases 
uh, with multiple tumor types with varying baseline characteristics. So there has been pretty heavy statistical adjustments to adjust for these characteristics and make sure we're not biased for low-grade tumors um, being also positive for, for TREK fusions leading to prognostic um, benefits and not truly a drug effect. But here you'll see on these curves that this is truly looking like a drug effect for this disease. Changing gears to entrectinib. Entrectinib is a pan inhibitor of uh, TREK, ROS1, and ALK. Um, and what's important about this, um, about these different pathways, is that they do cause redundancies that lead to um, proliferation, improved cancer survival. And providing a pan inhibitor does improve the ability to prevent compensatory pathways and improve the efficacy of, um, of, of, um, of our targeted therapy. And we're also in a world where we're thinking about combining different medications with unique uh, targeting approaches for, for, for this group of patients. And let's see how this panned out in the clinical world. This slide summarizes the updated efficacy results with entrectinib across multiple tumor types. Um, I want you to focus on the uh, on the table with the first row being overall survival uh, correction, overall response rate. We're seeing the overall response rate in the entire population was 61 percent here, which was fairly preserved whether or not the patients had uh, CNS metastases. Again, 16% complete response rate, 44% partial response rate, with a median progression-free survival of 13.8 months, and median overall survival approaching 40 months. So very compelling data here uh, in terms of um, efficacy with entrectinib for patients with TREK fusions. At what cost? What are the side effects that patients can experience with these medications? We're seeing pretty similar um, side effect profiles in what we were seeing earlier. We're seeing some taste changes um, and elevated LFTs. And uh, most of these do appear to be grade one, grade two. If we focus on the grade three toxicities, we're seeing fatigue, weight gain, and anemia, and then some odd dizziness, um, diarrhea, and peripheral edema. Again, emphasizing that we need to go back to our clinical roots, continue to make sure we monitor our patients carefully, and most of these side effects improved with dose adjustments, and only 4% of patients needed to discontinue their treatment due to treatment-related adverse events. A word on what's coming down the pike in terms of um, next-generation inhibitors for, uh, for TREK. We have repotrectinib and selotrectinib. Um, repo is designed to bind within the ATP binding boundary and, um, uh, and can target uh, wild-type and mutated kinases. There's a phase 1-2 trial evaluating uh, repo for patients who have ALKROS1 and NTREK fusion genes, so we'll look forward to hearing more data in that space. Selotrectinib is believed to bind to the TREK kinase domain and, and reestablishes the blockage of downstream signaling pathways, again, removing compensatory pathways, which may lead to secondary or primary, for that matter, um, paths of resistance to TREK pathway uh, blockage. Um, this slide is here to show uh, patients who did have acquired resistance mutations to, uh, to TREK inhibitors who were treated with selotrectinib, deriving fairly uh, impressive clinical response here. We're seeing uh, fairly uh, marked shrinkage of, um, of the disease in, um, uh, in, in the patient. And these are the first two patients uh, treated with selotrectinib. So exciting field. And again, how we're seeing the EGFR space, the ALK space, and the lung cancer 
uh, the FGFR space for uh, for cholangiocarcinoma, we're seeing sequencing of treatments developing for for TREC fusion, which is wonderful uh, for our patients. Back to Richard's case. Yeah, so I guess very similar uh, discussions to what we're having before. Like, what is a good response if um, um, and and if someone is suffering from adverse events on these medications? Um, what do we do with their doses? When is enough treatment sufficient? And I'm still grappling with the decision on how to treat people who have a clinical complete response. Curious to what, what, what your thoughts are for, for this group of patients. Yeah, I mean, um, again, these are rare, so I've only kind of had a handful of both um, TREC and RET and uh, kind of will defer to Dr. Sabaya about clinical complete responses. Um, haven't had yet um, kind of a patient that's had a complete clinical response. Um, so have just treated um, to progression, but um, I'm not sure. Have you seen any and again, complete? You know, because these patients have a you know, higher disease burden, I, I think they still you know, have some clones probably going on. So unless, if this is a part of a new adjuvant strategy, wherein we get to a you know, tumor reduction where we can take the tumor out and stop treatment. Um, you know, we don't have the answers yet. I think it should be guided by the clinical status of that patient. You know, there are, you know, we need to really have a you know, reasonable discussion with the patient. I think here we can take cues from imatinib, from CML and imatinib from GIST. It's good that we are talking about imatinib and like, you know, long-term therapy in these patients. It's great to talk about that. Um, and have these debates whether to stop treatment, continue treatment, uh, you know, for, for, for things like that. I think this is, um, you know, exciting times to be in oncology. And, and I guess that the take home is to, to, to make the decisions on continuing treatment based on patient tolerability rather than duration or, or, or depth of response. Because you could have someone with a partial response who is deriving tremendous clinical benefit. You know, the clinical response isn't necessarily, complete clinical response isn't necessarily a goal to achieve uh, in a lot of these patients. So, to just conclude in the next five minutes, then we'll take some questions from here. So again, this ties in for the whole discussion. So this was a, a pancreatic metastatic ductal adenocarcinoma of Dr. Schallenbeck. A patient was treated by folferinox and folferi for six months and unfortunately had to discontinue due to PD. This adolescent young adult patient, uh, Dr. Beg, sent for molecular profiling and found a red fusion. Patient was MSS stable, and KRAS and BRAF were wild type. So I still remember the text Dr. Beg sent I Actually, me. I did not text him. I sent him a direct message on Twitter because he was tweeting about a new trial that he had just opened. This is like five or six <laughs> years ago. So that is the power of Twitter here, right? So he DM'd me on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah, I, I saw the patient the next day. You know, and I saw the patient the next day, enrolled the patient on the selpercatinib, study and you know fantastic response rates and the patient is still on therapy you know you can see the responses and you know you know deepening of responses over 50 percent um, reduction of target lesions manageable low-grade aes and uh, it, it's rewarding to you know treat such patient the response is uh, ongoing at like now i can update at 50 months now and again you know these patients these you know these such patients as a group uh, you know, extremely rare patients, these, you know, needles in haystacks of patients here, uh, again, led to uh, tissue agnostic approval of selpercatinib and red fusion positive cancers. Again, this is the latest tissue agnostic approval, September 21, 2022. 
uh, as the latest tissue agnostic approval. It's approved in all um, uh, patients, uh, regardless of uh, you know fusion partner, and and it's active regardless of you know prior line, prior lines of therapy, uh, regardless of tumor type. Great. And, and in fact, so, I want to make one point yeah. on on this graph, and and you know a lot of the stuff that we are talking about today is predicated on oncologists ordering the test. Um, that, that patient, I was not universally testing my pancreas patients. This is before MSI data, even when, when we tested her. And I look at this graph every time you show it, and, and she's the rightmost uh, graph on, on change from baseline. And I can't help but think about situations where I may have forgotten or not tested specific patients and how many patients we may have not been able to um, uh, offer offer these treatments. So I think remembering to test, you know, before we start our treatment, talking to our pathologists is, is just so so important. Yeah. So don't guess. Do NGS. That's your that's your message. <laughs> right. So all right. So we are running out of time. We have just uh, five minutes for Q and A. Let's take some questions from the audience. I have some questions here. Is the first question is efficacy uh, tied to tumor volume? So who wants to take the question? Who wants to take it? If efficacy tied to tumor volume? Yeah, I mean, no, but I, th I think we, we do know that overall, you know, patients do better when their disease burden is um, lower. And I mean, my God, looking at that a CAT scan in 50 months is like incredible. So I'm like so intrigued if you were to biopsy those liver lesions that there was Ab anything. Absolutely. I think efficacy is tied, I mean, not, more than tumor yeah, volume. Of course, tumor volume, if they have a low burden, they have a better, you know, they have a better response. But efficacy is tied to prior lines of therapy. Efficacy is also tied to the co-occurring alterations uh, in that patient. And efficacy is also tied to the dose that they can tolerate. If they can tolerate the maximum approved dose for quite a long time, and you know, efficacy is tied to that. So the next question is, should all new patient uh, tumors with colon cancer undergo DNA-based NGS? And RNA. And RNA-based NGS, right? Yes, yes, so that's the answer. So next question. Okay, this is a question I don't know how to answer this question. None of us know, except Dr. Rashid here. How often do you macro dissect to improve sensitivity? So the idea is that the biopsy or the resection specimen, um, we mark the area of the tumor. If it's less than 20% tumor in that marked area, we can't do that. That's uh, like our threshold, it has to be 5% uh, of uh, tumor allele there for us to find it. Uh, so the pathologist call everything 20%. So, so that they want us to sequence uh, their uh, tumor or the one that they have marked. So majority of the things that we have, we uh, are able to do it. Older samples don't work. If it's like five, 10 years uh, old sample, does not work well. Some samples for some odd reasons, uh, we, about 50% of our volume is, uh, these are, uh, patients who had biopsy or resection somewhere else. So these are outside uh, material. Some of that may not work also. For some odd reason, some samples don't work. But a majority of uh, samples, we are able to generate a report. So again, the next question is risks and side effects long-term. I think we discussed that. The next question is, 
please discuss routine germline genetic testing for patients with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Dr. Beck, do you want to take that? Yeah. Um, so both germline testing for pancreatic cancer and somatic testing for pancreatic cancer is recommended through NCCN. Um, in talking to different companies um, and different vendors, um, my take home is that the normal somatic testing that we do that we've talked all of our presentation today about um, is not well um, adjusted for, for germline mutations that we should order them separately. And that could be a lot of testing for our patients up front, but they do lead to very different algorithms in terms of uh, screening early detection, uh, use of PARP inhibitors and, um, and other aspects. But I wonder, Dr. Rashid, if there is um, any technical advancement that's coming up which will make this redundant. So occasionally we find germline mutations. Um, we don't report it on the, uh, we um, email the genetic counselor and the physician uh, because the RSs are not validated. Most labs, these are not validated for germline testing. We don't comprehensively test all the uh, germline mutations. So that's the reason that we don't report it. Um, but uh, I've seen sort of reports, I think they sent it out for pancreatic cancer, of course, for colon cancer also. Some of that we do in-house, but uh, some of that is sent out also. Thank you. And any relationship between age and any genetic testing? Age, age? No, so in, um, you know, pancreatic cancer, as Dr. Bag mentioned, it's all patients with um, pancreatic cancer. And um, there's a movement uh, to same with, um, with colorectal cancer, just to do germline testing on all, pa all patients. Yeah, and I guess that was referring to germline, but um, same thing with um, um, somatic, no, no age dependency. Thank you. Maybe one more question and we will wrap it up. So, do you prefer and can obtain fresh biopsy rather than rely on archival tissue testing, or do you see change over time of targeted biomarker and genetic alterations? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, it's a good, good question about when do you re-biopsy, so you treat at the time, um, you know, initially. I think that's one of the promises of, I think, liquid biopsies is to, you know, do the serial testing at the time of resistance. Um, to understand, you know, acquired resistance mechanisms and, uh, you know, try to think about your next line of therapy. Um, so it depends, you know, uh, from the initial, you know, diagnosis to now. But generally speaking, if it's a, you know, new metastatic diagnosis, um, you know, even from a prior, um, you know, adjuvant setting, um, we'll do a new biopsy for that patient. All right. With that's a wrap. So with that, we conclude our session for today. I thank uh, the organizers and the amazing speakers. I think this was a you know, terrific debate. Uh, we can go on and on. Um, um, so until next year, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash PCK 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.